take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. The book of James, chapter 1. I was uh, thinking about this series this week and talking about, uh, or thinking about when life blows up, and I came across a story that expresses a question that can be found on the hearts of, of people when life kind of blows up. And it's a story of a man named Glenn Chambers, and by all accounts, Glenn Chambers was doing exactly what God had called him to do. He, uh, he felt the Lord calling him to do ministry, felt him called to do missionary work, and so Glenn left his home and comfortable life and went and did ministry, went, and do, went to do missions work. And uh, the time finally came for him to, to leave the country and felt that he had been called to Lima, Peru. And so uh, Glenn packed all his stuff up, got it together. Uh, he was flying out of his hometown to Miami. He got to Miami. Everything was great. He was getting ready to leave Miami and go from Miami to Peru. And so as he was sitting in the airport, in the Miami airport, getting ready to go to Peru, he, he thought, I need to send one last message to my mom. He, he, he had told her bye, but he just felt like he needed to send her one last message. And so this was on June 23rd, 1959. He was sitting in the airport getting ready to go, and he thought, one last message. So he looked for something to write on. He couldn't find any stationery, and he couldn't find anything around that was blank. And so he grabbed the local newspaper. He tore off a piece of the local newspaper, and he wrote a quick note to his mom, put it in an envelope, and he mailed it from the Miami airport to his mother. Well, Glenn got on the plane. He went from uh, Miami, Florida to Bogota. And in Bogota, then he went from there from to Lima, Peru. And on the way from Bogota to Lima... As they were flying through the mountains, the pilot misread the instruments or something, and he crashed in the mountains. No survivors, never made it to the mission field. They, brought his, they were able to find the wreckage and find his body, and they brought it back to America, and they had a funeral for him. And so a day or two after the funeral, the letter arrives. And as the mom goes to the mailbox, she pulls the letter out, and Glenn Chambers, who she has just buried, has sent her a letter. And as she opens it up, she opens it up and pulls it out the wrong way first. She pulls it out not with where he has written, but with the newspaper article on the other side. And the newspaper wasn't even an article. It was just one word in big letters that simply said, why, with a question mark. Now, I don't know the rest of that story that was not given about what happened with his mom, but I can guarantee you this, that there wasn't a better expression of what was on her heart at that moment than that one simple word. Now, what we want to talk about today is how do we move from that question, which is a valid and important question, how do we move from that question to the next question, which is even more important and more valid. This week, as uh, we were going through the week, actually early in the week on Monday, I believe, I got an email from Brenda Vaughn. And I've asked Brenda to come in just a moment and share about what God has kind of done in her life. Uh, Brenda just talked about the sermon last week and some instances that had come in her life. And what I really liked about what Brenda wrote, and that she's going to share with you today, is that it shows just in a very short yeah, she's going to explain something that took months in a few minutes. That's hard to do. 
But it shows her progress and process of going from why to a more important question than that. So I'm going to ask Brenda to go ahead and come up and tell you a little bit of her journey in the last year and a half. Last Sunday, Brother Lyle shared with us about some life-changing telephone calls that he had received, and that prompted me to tell him about the life-changing telephone call I got last year on April 3rd. That was a beautiful Friday morning, and I was out at a yard sale when my cell phone rang, and it was my doctor calling to inform me that what I had thought was a kidney stone was, in fact, endometrial cancer. And while I was standing there in shock, she went on to tell me that she'd already set up an appointment for me at the Sarah Cannon Cancer Center and that I would be going there to arrange for surgery. Well, five days later, I was at Sarah Cannon talking to the surgeon, and he told me that my cancer was a stage one and that he felt certain the surgery would take care of the problem without having to have any other treatment. So I had the surgery. And two weeks later, I went back for my checkup, and that's when I got surprise number two. The lab reports had shown cancer cells in my abdominal fluid. And suddenly, my stage one cancer became stage three cancer, and I was scheduled for 31 radiation treatments. I was devastated. Uh, Stage three just sounded so much worse to me than stage one. But I started the uh, radiation therapy, and for the first five days of that, it seemed like everything that could possibly go wrong did go wrong. By day six, I was just a basket case. I thought, I can't endure much more of this. But when I went in that morning for my sixth treatment, a series of events started that left me in absolute amazement. Every time I had a need, from that day forward, it was met. Sometimes my need was met before I realized I had a need. I felt God's presence with me every step of the way. This past week, on Wednesday, August 18th, was the one-year anniversary of my last radiation treatment. Would I have ever chosen to have cancer? No way. Am I thankful for the positive changes that have occurred in my life as a result of that experience? Absolutely. I feel like I've become a more caring, compassionate person. I've come to realize that some of the things I used to consider to be of major importance were really insignificant. I now know that a phone call, a card, a kind word, or a pat on the back can mean the world to a person who's having a really bad day. I've felt the love and the peace that comes from knowing that God's people are praying for me. Out of my life being shaken and blown up, I have a new, deeper, closer relationship with God and more strength in my life as a Christian. And for that and so much more, I give him the glory. Thank you. Brenda was scheduled to give that in the first service. And after the first service, I said, I want you to share in the second. So I appreciate her sticking around Uh, to do that. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, which is perhaps, and in some people's mind, the most ridiculous verse in all of Scripture. All right? James 1, verse 2. That's a pretty big statement, all right? So here it is. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, let me just stop for a minute there. We're going to get into the sermon in a minute, really into it. But I just want to explain to you to whom James is writing. 
Now, first of all, who is James? Well, James, by all accounts and all that we can uh, take, is James here is Jesus' half-brother. Okay? Throughout the Gospels, it tells stories of his brothers coming to see him and telling him he needs to stop doing what he's doing. You see, James was not a believer in Jesus or his ministry. And the Scriptures tell us that apparently Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection, and James became a follower of Jesus. Now, here's the remarkable thing about James. In a very short period of time, James the unbeliever, Jesus' half-brother, becomes James the leader of the church in Jerusalem. By the time we get to Acts chapter 15, and they have the big uh, discussion in Acts 15, chapter 15 about uh, people coming to faith in Jesus and what they must do, the leader and the decision maker and the one helping the apostles, now think about this for a minute, helping the apostles decide what they ought to do is James. And so James, it says here in chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Now, it's important to understand that the twelve tribes there means the Jewish Christians that were no longer living in Jerusalem, but when scattered around. What most people think the book of James is, is a collection of his sermons that he put together in a book, and he sent to Jewish Christians all over the world. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. The reason there were Jewish Christians scattered, it tells us in the book of Acts, is because of persecution that was happening. That Stephen is killed, and it says after that they scattered because of the persecution. So what we're talking about here, when James says, consider it joy when trials come, he's talking about serious trials. He's not talking about fluff or insignificant. He's not talking about petty stuff. He's talking about life and death situations. Consider it joy when people try to kill you. That's basically what he's saying. Now, he says of many kinds. And so just take that as an understanding. Verse 2 again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking in anything. Now, just so we're on the same page as we begin this morning, I want to remind us of what we're talking about here when we talk about trials. I gave you two definitions last week. I want to give you two definitions, those same ones this week. And the first is from Gordon MacDonald, and it says this, It is those unanticipated events, most of which one would have usually chosen to have avoided in the first place. I couldn't help when Brenda sent her email and when she just talked, the, to that question that she asked, would I have chosen cancer? Well, absolutely not. And there are things in our lives that we don't choose to happen. I, I guess, you know, I, I don't guess. I know that if I went around this room right now and I said, I want you to list three things you wish would not have happened in your life. We could come up with things. I'm not talking about the spiritual thing on the other side of it. Well, God, I'm just saying when it happened, you said, I wish that wouldn't have happened. Or three things that you don't want to happen in your life. We could come up with lists like that pretty easy. And what happens here is those are the unanticipated events. We don't look for them. We don't anticipate them. They just happen. James McDonald says it this way, that it's a painful circumstance allowed by God to change my conduct and my character. And so when it says here in James, a trial, what we're talking about is that, an unanticipated event 
We wouldn't have chosen in the first place. It's painful, but it allows God to change my conduct or my character. Four things I want us to think about today as we consider this passage of Scripture. And the first thing is the word consider tells us that we ought to learn to ask the right question. Here's what I mean by that. We're going to talk in detail in a minute about the word consider. But what James is encouraging them to do throughout this whole passage is to think differently about their trials than the people who are not followers of Jesus think about their trials. What he basically is saying is that you have got to learn to look at your life from a completely different perspective than those who are not followers of Jesus. And as believers in Jesus, we ought to have a different perspective We ought a different outlook, a different worldview, whatever word you want to say. We ought to approach life differently than people who are not believers in Jesus. And that includes and is especially true in trials. And so what he says is you've got to learn to start asking the right question. Now, I mentioned the question why. And those are questions that naturally come when difficulties happen. How did I get here? Why did I get here? How quickly can I get out? what, What does all this mean? It's easy to get very, and I don't use this word lightly or or any other way than just the way it means. It's easy to get pretty selfish in the midst of a trial. How does it affect me? Why is it on me? What what, what does this mean for my future? What does this mean for my... It's easy to get focused inwardly in a trial. But the right question is a different question. Now... In the Scripture, perhaps the person that embodied that best is Jesus. Um, In just a few chapters in the book of John, he gives three instances where he kind of demonstrates this. And the first one happens when he's walking down the road with his disciples, and he comes to a man that was born blind. Those of you who've been in Sunday school, you've been in church, you've probably heard this story. He's walking, the man's born blind, and the guy's kind of crawling out for him. And the disciples look at him, and they say, Jesus, we've got a question for you. Um, Whose fault is it that he's blind? Is it? His sin or his parents' sin that he's caused blind. Now, in their day and time, that's what they thought. If you were blind, you did something really bad, or your parents did. So they say, whose fault is it? And Jesus says, it's nobody's fault. The reason that he was born blind was so that God's manifest glory and power can be shown when I heal him. It's for God's glory that he's been blind. A couple of chapters later, Jesus gets word that his best friend Lazarus is sick, very sick. They send word to him, and Jesus gets the word, and Jesus, like a good friend, rushes right to Lazarus, right? No. He says, he'll be okay, I'll be there. I'll be there when I get there. So he spends a couple extra days not doing a, I mean, he's doing ministry, but he's not doing anything extravagant. He gets there, he finds out that Lazarus has died. Lazarus is buried, and his sisters come out and say, Where have you been? If you weren't here, Lazarus would still, if you would have gotten here, Lazarus would be alive. Why did you wait? Why were you not here? They're accusing Jesus. Basically, what they're saying is, We've seen you heal hundreds of people that you didn't care as much about Lazarus as you do. Why'd you let it happen? And Jesus says, Why are you so concerned? Why why, why does that bother you so much? Here's the thing. He is asleep so that God's glory might be demonstrated. You know the rest of the story, right? Lazarus come forth. They say, that's ridiculous, Jesus. He's been dead. 
my favorite verse, you know, one of my favorite verses in the King James is, by now he stinketh, Lord. Jesus calls Lazarus forth and God's given the glory. Jesus enters Jerusalem on his last week. He knows his time short. They're praising him, but he knows his time short. He gets in there. He begins to walk through all those things. And in the midst of all that's happening, he realizes that his death is imminent. And what happens is, in the midst of that, instead of saying, woe is me, why me, why now? He says, Lord, may you be glorified in what happens here. Here's the principle and the question you need to move to. You need to move not to why, but to how can God be glorified in the midst of it. Here's a principle, a life principle. This is more than just this sermon. This is in life in general. That you need to be more concerned for God's glory than your own comfort. We have to get to a place as believers in Jesus Christ. If we are serious about our faith, we must come, become consumed with a desire for the renown of our Lord to be broadcast across this world. We must be consumed with a desire for God's glory instead of our own comfort. The first thing that we see here is that we begin to ask the right question. Not why, but how. Here's the second thing. We've got to learn to investigate our situation. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That first word there, the word consider, literally means to investigate, to thoroughly look at, to search in every way possible. The idea literally is that we are to look at our situation in life and analyze it as best we can. Now, here's the thing I want you to see about that. In spite of saying that we are to look at God's glory instead of our own, that does not mean in any way that we minimize the importance or the difficulty or the pain that we're going through in our trial. When it says here that we are to consider it, it means to take it very seriously. That what you are feeling and happening is real and sincere, and there is no way to minimize the pain or the grief or the trouble you may be going through at any time. This does not mean slap a happy face on when your world is falling apart. It doesn't mean just to flippantly say, well, I just count it all joy. It's what the Bible says. It says you are to consider it, to understand it, to realize the seriousness in it. I was watching the Today Show a few, uh, I guess it's been a couple of weeks ago now, and uh, they showed this new trend in, in big cities to deal with the recession and people losing jobs and losing uh, apartments and all this stuff. There is a, now a support group that you walk into a man's office and you pay him for this. You walk into his office and all you do is laugh with other people. No words spoken. You just laugh. You walk in and somebody starts laughing at you or with you or however you see it, and you laugh back. And before long, there's a room full of laughing people. And they marveled at the ways that this can increase one's spirit. It's a bunch of fooey to me, all right? You just don't go in and start laughing, right? And so the, this verse doesn't mean you just, you know, there's <laughs> terrible stuff happened. I'm just going to laugh about it. You consider it. You investigate it. 
you look at it, and you look at it in every way. It, it continues that kind of thing when it says this, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The word there in the Greek is the same word in the Greek Old Testament that is used of Joseph's coat. You remember Joseph's coat, right? It was the coat of many colors, right? It means varied. It means that we're going to have things happen in our lives that are different. In fact, the, the kind of the meaning behind this is that every trial that you face will be different than a trial that you've had before, and every trial that you face will be different than anybody else faces, so you have unique trials in your life. And so you have to investigate it. You have to know about it. You have to figure it out. But in the midst of that, as you're investigating, as you're considering it, you do it with joy. Now, let me just say real quickly. Perhaps one of the most misunderstood words in our language is the word joy. Because people think joy is just happiness to the extreme. Joy and happiness really have nothing to do with each other. The truth is that there is no better time in your life to determine the difference between joy and happiness than when you're in the midst of a trial. Because happiness is an emotion. Joy is a settled understanding of who God is. This is what somebody has said joy is. It is a supernatural. That means that it is of, not of this world. It means we can't create it. It means that it's not something you and I can conjure up. It is a supernatural delight in the person, purposes, and people of God. It is an understanding that God is the one that we find our joy in. Let me just say this, and this is a statement that some of you may, uh, may not agree with. That's okay. I believe that unless you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot have joy. I didn't say happiness. And I believe that much of what people do in their lives is an attempt to find this. It is related to peace. It's related to security. It's a supernatural delight in the person and the purposes and the people of God. It is saying that even though I am in the worst possible situation I could be in, right now I am delighting in the fact that my God is still in control, that His purposes will prevail, and I can trust in His people to help me through. It is a settled assurance and who God is. You know, we're, I know it's hard to believe this, but we're not far from Christmas. Right? I think Cracker Barrel already has their Christmas stuff out. So if anybody needs a Tennessee Vol or Kentucky Wildcat ornament, they're already at Cracker Barrel. Right? I know that's on your list for this afternoon. And at Christmas, people will wear shirts that say joy, and they'll be all decorated nice. And we like to claim it, you know, joy to the world. But we don't have a clue what we're talking about. Because biblically, joy is a settled delight in the person, the purposes, and the people of God. Here's the third thing. Once we investigate, then we must take the test and cherish the results. All right, let me see you show of hands. How many of you in here love taking tests? All right, even if you do, you're not going to raise your hand because that makes you look really bad, right? There's some of you out there. I see you gleaming. There's some test takers out there. All right, we don't like tests, do we? We don't like tests of any variety. We don't like tests in school. We don't like tests in any place. Let me tell you what happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Susan informed me about a month and a half ago that I was going to see an allergist. 
Now, here's how guys get to the doctor. Our wives call and make the appointments and tell us we're going. Amen, guys? There. All right, and so she calls me and she says, you're going to the allergist. I'm tired of hearing you cough and sneeze and all that every morning. You're going to figure out what's going on. So I go to the allergist a week and a half ago. And I walk into his office and, you know, it's a consultation visit. You know, first time consultation. What do you, what's the problems? What do you got going on? Do you wake up? I wake up coughing. I wake up sneezing. Sometimes I can't sleep well at night. You, ever, you know, all those questions. You know, I had to fill out 812 pages of paperwork before I went. And then they just read me what I wrote, you know. And so they get through and they say, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run a couple of tests to see if we can determine what you're allergic to. And the first test we're going to run is the back test. Anybody ever had that back test and allergy stuff? That's, that's fun. You just don't know what you're missing out on here. I said, all right, what's going to happen? They said, we're just going to, just going to expose your back to some allergens and to see if it reacts. Okay. So they go out. They come back in with two trays. You may know how they get it into your back. They have little things. Well, I, I prefer to call them torture devices. They are, they are toothpick-like things that have been dipped in this substance, and they poke it until it breaks the skin on your back. Seventy-three of them. Seventy-three. I'm a big boy. I just sit there. Susan actually texted me in the middle. It goes, because <laughs> I had to bend over. She said, do they do testing for children? I said, we are not subjecting our boys to this. All right? This is not happening. So they do the 73 pokes in the back. They go out. Fifteen minutes, they come back in occasionally to see if some sort of map has developed on your back or you know, diagram of something to see if you're allergic. They come back in, and this is what they say. Well, that test was inconclusive. Praise God for that, right? We're going to have to do another test. Well, what's the other test? Can't be as bad as that, right? Well, this one is on your arm, and we're going to use needles, and we're going to inject a little bit of the fluid underneath the skin of your arm to see if it breaks out, all right? But we're not going to do 73 of those. Well, thank goodness for that. We're going to do 19. So, 19 shots in the arm. That's fun, isn't it? Well, then she says, well, I can give you an option. If you don't want me to test whether or not you're allergic to horses, I'll just give you 18. I said, I'm going with the 18 plan, all right? So, they inject 18 shots into my arm, okay? After it's done, go away 15 minutes. They come back. It is inconclusive. So they have to draw blood. We'll see you in two weeks. All right? I do not like tests, especially 73 pricks in the back. All right? None of us like tests. But the truth is tests are important in determining what we know. And it says here in the book of James that we consider it joy. Why? Why is this joy? Why is this a good thing? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, here's the thing about that. Testing reveals who we are. And in the midst of trials, it shows us who we really are. James McDonald, who's a pastor in Chicago, says that there are three things 
that God wants to know the answer to in the midst of any trial we find ourselves. This thing going to be on the screen. You can write it down if you're taking notes. But three things he wants to know. First of all, do you believe God is in control? Do you believe God is in control? The second question is, do you believe that God is good no matter what you see or face? Do you believe God is good no matter what you see or face? And here's the last one. Will you wait as long as you need to to see God's goodness in the midst of the trial? Those are the three questions that God wants answered in each test of our faith. And as the test comes more and more, or as we have more and more occasions, we have more and more opportunities to show whether or not we're faithful. Now, here's the thing. Once we are in the test, there are results. Part of what was so frustrating about that allergy test is there were no results. I went through 73 things on my back, 18 things on my arm, and they don't know anything more now than they did before. That's frustrating. What God promises is when you remain where you need to in the midst of a trial, He will work in you and He will bring results. There are a couple of results that He says here. First of all, He will give perseverance. Perseverance. I want to teach you a Greek word today because I know that's why you came to church is you wanted a Greek word today, all right? So here's a Greek word. It's going to be up on the screen. It's called hupomeno, all right? Hupomeno. Now, that's obviously not it in the Greek. That's me spelling it so you can pronounce it. I want you to say it with me, okay? Hupomeno. Say it with me. Hupomeno. And it's a compound word. you remember that from English? You take two words, you put it together. Now, the first one is kind of a prefix, but it can also be on its own. And if you put the two together, this is what it literally means. It means to remain under. To remain under. Now, here's why that's important. When a trial or test or difficulty comes in your life, what God wants to see is whether or not you will remain under that trial or difficulty until he brings it to conclusion. And it's important because most of us do not want to remain under. We want to get out. I was reminded of that this week. I, uh, I mentioned last week I was going to, uh, in this service or the first one, I was going to start uh, working out a little bit. And so I went and joined a place and uh, got on a bike and started running, I mean, started pedaling, uh, doing Whatever you do on a bike, do you run or you pedal? You pedal, right? It tells you how long it's been since I worked out. You know. So I started pedaling. And I was going good for like 10 or 15 minutes good. I'd put in one of those programs. They use those machines. You put in the program, and it, you, know, you put in your height, your weight, you know, I don't know, social security number, childhood diseases, whatever, and it figures out a plan for you on there. And so it starts going through this plan. I'm about 10, 15 minutes in. I'm like, man, this is going good. I must be in a lot better shape than I think. And so... Uh, I'm watching the TV. They got the TV built into the thing, and I'm watching it. And I glance down at the little screen, and I notice that I've been in the warm-up period. Right? And it shows the next stage is I'm going into the hill climbs. Now, I don't know what area they think we live in, but apparently it's related to the Alps. All right? Because this is like mountain climbing going on on the thing. 
And I see it start to go. And when I that when that first hill of resistance hits, the first thing I want to do is get off the bike and say, My time is done. Right? I want to say, I'm done. It's over. I'm not doing this anymore. I remembered very quickly why I didn't work out in the first place, right? Because I don't like to remain under in that moment. But here's the thing. If I don't remain on the bike, I never accomplish anything. If I get off when it gets a little hard, then I'm not accomplishing anything. And so in life, when those tests and those trials come, the most important thing to do is to remain under them when they come. Now, I thought of some ways that we normally do. Let's not remain under. When trials, when difficulties come, the first thing a lot of us want to do is just simply complain. Right? Complain about the situation. You wouldn't believe what has happened to me today. You are not going to believe how terrible it is. Complain about it to ourselves. Complain about it to our friends. Complain about it to our families. And if we can't complain about our situation enough, we'll find other things that are happening to other people and complain about that. And we'll find situations that don't even have anything to do with what's happening. And we'll complain about that. We just like to complain. Why? Because it feels good in the moment. But it doesn't help you remain under. Some of us don't complain. We just lash out. Right? We just start yelling at whoever is around. Whatever is going on. Some of you in this room, and I'm not going to point fingers. I don't know all of you, but some of you in this room, when difficulty happens in your life, you are the last person anybody else needs to be around. Because you just lash out. Whoever's around. Family, friends, teachers, co-workers, parents, students, whoever. Some of you don't lash out. You just bail. You just get out. I'm gone. I'm done. I, I, I'm going to just... I'm done. Um, in Brazil, uh, we, we've told you we rode a ferry every day. And uh, the boats in the little uh, inlet where the water is would not be considered modern boats by any stretch of the imagination. The ferry we were on was not a modern boat. But one day in particular, we're going across in the ferry. There are boats all over the place. It, they, they fish there. They don't fish with rod and reel. They fish throwing the nets out. Looks like, I mean, it's like something from, from Scripture. you got one guy kind of rowing, one guy standing up throwing the nets out and pulling the nets in and all that. One day, we're, we're, the boat's just going by, and there's got a guy with a huge stick, and he's just gradually pushing it. And that guy just looks like he's just calm as could be. And right next to him is a guy with a bucket, and he's just bailing water the whole time. Water's coming in. He's bailing. All right? He took a break for a second, you know, kind of get his breath, and then he went back at it. Now, a lot of us in our lives, when difficulties come, we're like that guy bailing water. We're trying to just get out of it any way we can, but it's a losing battle. He could bail water all day long, but water was still going to come in that boat. Some of us complain. Some of us lash out. Some of us bail. And some of us just fold. You know what it means to fold, right? Pull it down and say, I'm done go inward, get away from people, and we just fall. None of those four allow us to remain under to understand what God wants us to do. Here's the last thing. Not only do you have to ask the right question, you have to ask the right person. What it says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Here's the reality. If you're in a bad situation right now, you're in a problem situation, you're in a place you don't know how you're going to get out of, 
the only person to go to is the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you don't find support in other people. But if you're not going to the Lord, then you're short-circuiting your help system. And what you need to begin to do is just to fall on your knees and go to God. And ask Him to help you to remain under. It's okay to ask Him to remove it as long as that's not your primary concern. Remember, your primary concern is God's glory, not your comfort. And so you ask Him to help you remain under in order to bring Him glory, whatever that means.